morning, evening, whatever it might be to all of you. Uh, I brought a, a, a sample of books that are, are just, I mean, tip of the iceberg of, of his church history books you can get. Some are small. Um, one like this is, uh, that's just one on the Nicene Creed. That's a thick one. These are kind of smaller ones. You can get a quick overview of church history on those. I do not recommend them. These are simply readings in Christian history, uh, what certain people have written, blah, blah, blah. You've got uh, others that, uh, that have a whole, whole theology on certain things. You've got overviews. Uh, there's a, there are lots of good overviews out there you can get. In fact, the one I recommend, that my favorite one of all of these, one of them, is this one by Bruce Shelley, um, excellent writer. Everything, even though it's a thick book, I mean, it's 2,000 years. It's not like, uh, you know, and we'll spend the next, if you were to read along, uh, you would find yourself reading 10, 20 pages a day. That's, that's doable, right? Um, and 10, 20 pages a day after a few months, you read the whole book. You've got it. You've got a good reference book. The other one that I love is uh, this one, uh, Justo Gonzalez, is, uh, was my, one of my textbooks in seminary. And uh, I just love, he's very thorough, small print, but... Uh, Excellent, excellent stuff. So you know my good buddy Roy Ledgerwood, who's now deceased, wrote this book on the 11th version of it, and uh, he gives me a lot of my slides, uh, at least I get to cheat a little bit and use some of his slides, charts of history, church history, if you like to look at charts, um, and I think most of us do, that's uh, excellent stuff there. So anyway, I want to give you a sampling. I recommend this one, Bruce Shelley's Church History. I recommend it to Ed, he went and got it, so it's still in print. You can download it on uh, on iBooks. I have it on iBooks. You can read it on your iPad or your Kindle, whatever it is you use. But get something. The only way to keep up with this study and, and to get it all in is to be reading something along the way. At least I recommend that. You may just have all kinds of fun with just the lectures themselves. Um, and that's, that's fine too. But uh, if you need more, I can recommend more. Well, good evening. Let's start with a word of prayer and uh, we'll get going on our next study. Lord, we thank you. We thank you that uh, we live in this time in history where we have so much history to, to discuss. There's so many things to look back on, good, bad, and ugly. Thank you for the freedom that we continue to have to study your word, to be open with our faith. May we look back and see the way our ancestors were treated and, uh, and give you wonderful and deserved glory for how you have blessed us. Sometimes you have... Uh, no doubt, not sometimes, but all the time. We are blessed now because of what you did then. May we make the connections in church history to your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, one of the books I'll be using tonight is the Apostolic Fathers. Um, these are uh, the early, once the apostles died, we have men that we call the church fathers. And uh, their writings are in here. You get, uh, this is an assortment of books. Oop, those are upside down. Um, Epistle of Barnabas. You didn't know there was an Epistle of Barnabas. First and Second Clement, the Didache. What is that? Well, tonight you're going to learn what the Didache is. Hermas, the shepherd of Hermas, which is the, the pastor of Hermas. Ignatius, Polycarp. There are letters written to these people from Ignatius. Uh, not Ign you, you'll know of another Ignatius, Ignatius of Loyola. He lived in the 1400s. Uh, this is Ignatius. He lived in the, the early 2nd century. He wrote letters to the Ephesians. You ever hear them? The, uh, the Romans, the Philadelphians, the Smyrnaeans, 
Some of the letters that we have, we, Polycarp wrote a letter to the Philippians. These are people that knew the early apostles, and their writings are helpful to us. So let's take a look. Last time we looked at uh, Peter's ministry and Paul's ministry when we overviewed our, our study of Acts that we did. And now we're in the late first century. We are after the fall of, the, of Jerusalem. I read to you some, uh, some grim details last week about people eating their babies. Cheryl said, uh, I don't know how well that, that went over, especially with, the, with poor Brian and uh, Madison who were here with their new baby. But uh, <laughs> at the very least, you see what some of the things uh, that went on. That horrific time when Jerusalem was surrounded by the Roman armies and uh, what the people had to do to survive, even eating their own children. There were some heresies that crept in. We'll look at these as we go in our study, not just tonight, but there were the Judaizers, you know about them. These were Jewish legalists, uh, and they, they added the law to, to God's grace in Christ. We met Simon Magus back in Acts chapter 8. He, his heresy that spread around was that of being able to purchase um, the Holy Spirit, purchase God's grace. These are still around today. There's legalists today. There are those who are trying to purchase God's grace, do good things, pay a lot of money, get what they want. The Nicolaitans, the Nicolaitans were the opposite of the Judaizers. The Judaizers were strict legalists. The Nicolaitans said, you're saved. Do whatever you want and live in this free license. And there are people today that do, this, that do the same thing. There was the, the heresy of docetism. It comes from the Greek word dokeo, which means to appear, to seem. And what they promoted was that because all matter is evil, matter meaning your body, the, the human flesh is evil. God would never take on human flesh. Human flesh is evil. Therefore, Jesus, God in flesh, only seemed like he was in flesh. He only seemed real. He didn't really die. His body wasn't punished. He didn't really die. So the heresy crept in. And what you see early on in the epistles, especially 1st, 2nd, 3rd John and the Gospel of John, is John trying to mitigate this problem. What did he say throughout? His favorite word in the epistles is, I know. You know what the Greek word for know is? Gnosis, from which we get the Gnostics. Gnostics. You ever heard of an, an agnostic? A Gnostic is one who knows. An agnostic says, I don't know. Gnosticism was a, a heresy that stemmed from docetism, which all said that matter is evil. And so John is writing his, his uh, gospel. Remember, what does he say in the first part? We, uh, in the beginning was the, the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. And what happened to the Word? The Word became flesh. Wow, is that possible? Not according to the docetics. He says, I know we knew Jesus. We were with him. We saw him. We touched him. He was real. Remember what John observes that no other gospel writer does? When Jesus died, what did, the, what did the, one of the soldiers do with a sword? Pierced his side and blood and water poured out. That's flesh and blood. This is John writing against these ideas. And so these creep up, and they were, then, they were there then, and they're here today. After the fall of Jerusalem in A.D. 70, you've got Jerusalem there in the red. John, it appears, moved. The apostle John, he's the, the last of the apostles. He appears to have been the youngest. Moved to Ephesus, uh, where Paul was once the pastor, where Timothy was once the pastor. Now where John becomes the pastor. There he wrote his three epistles. Later, uh, John was banished to the Isle of Patmos, which is just right off the coast there of Ephesus, where he wrote the book of Revelation. 
the cities that had churches by A.D. 100, you see them spattered throughout the Roman Empire. They're the known world of the day. Uh, notice there were most of them once were. In modern Turkey, of all places, that was the bastion of truth where the, the church of Jesus Christ was. Down in Jerusalem, you've got some in Africa, northern Africa there, Alexandria, Egypt, over to Rome. And so these are the, this is the way that the gospel has gone out. This is how it's spread. Uh, now these, as I told you last week, it's very difficult to find a bunch of good information, to gather good information, or I should say a plethora of information from A.D. 70 to 110. So what we have are little bits and pieces of what happened with the church. So what about the other apostles? Well, we know something about uh, the ones that are in the Bible. We know that Peter was in Asia Minor, that's Turkey. And how do we know that? Because he writes in his first epistle, he lists a bunch of cities that are in Asia Minor. So Peter was in Asia Minor in Corinth. How do we know he was in Corinth? Because when Paul writes the letter to the first Corinthians, uh, he, he notices there's divisions. Some say, I'm with Paul. Others say, I'm with Peter. I'm with, how do they know Peter? Well, Peter must have been there. Some did say, I'm with Apollos. Others were the real Bible church people, and they say, we're with Jesus. And that's, that's what they say. Paul says that as well. Uh, James, we know, was killed by Herod Agrippa. We learned that in Acts chapter 12. Uh, John was in Asia Minor, modern Turkey. Andrew, it's believed that he was in Scythia near the Black Sea. The rest of them we don't know. As for Philip, Bartholomew, also known as a Nathaniel, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Matthias. He was the one that was added after Judas Iscariot died. We have only speculation and weak traditions that tell us where they went, including the Apostle Peter, uh, as to where he went, where he died, which the Roman Catholic Church insists was Rome. Might have been. Uh, but we don't know where these people ended up. There are stories that say Thomas made his way into um, India, shared the gospel there, and there's some indication that he did. But most of these places in the country, in the Roman Empire, as I said last week, were eager to attach an apostle to their city. Oh, we had this apostle. That apostle came here. It gave their church some credibility. Oh, this guy was here. You know, it's like having a great, famous pastor. I'm sorry, you got me. So we don't know a whole lot about what happened. The tradition that we know of even Peter being crucified upside down is something that we read about in church history. Eusebius tells us about it. Uh, but we don't have any historical evidence per se. From the New Testament, along with some other early Christian documents, we note that Christianity likely spread to the purple areas on the map, perhaps even further. Uh, and so you see, again, the blue here is water. Gray's landmass, so it's right there concentrating mostly in the Roman Empire. Might have made it all the way over to Spain, uh, but uh, that's where it was in the first century. Not bad for a movement that started off so small. Here you'll see the various times that the places, I should say the, the, the dates where the uh, books of the New Testament were written. You've got Romans, First uh, and Second Corinthians, Galatians, First and Second Thessalonians written before A.D. 60. Um, after A.D. 60, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon, Paul wrote those from prison. 1 Timothy, Titus, and 2 Timothy, he wrote also uh, as he got out of prison and went back to prison. And then you've got this long stretch, and John writes his gospel, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, Revelation, towards the end of the first century. Um, down at the bottom, uh, I just have a question mark. James, I think James was an early epistle written probably around 46, 48. Uh, the others are, are 
First Peter, Second Peter, Jude, and Hebrews were not completely certain. In the second century, if we preview the second century, we see the beginnings of Roman Catholic doctrine. That's the biggest question people ask, and it's a good question to ask, is when did the Roman Catholic Church start? Just note that the word Catholic, it means universal. That's all it is. It's the, the universal church. Everything was Catholic when it first began. The Catholic Church is the universal. It's the one church of Jesus Christ. There were no Baptists. There were no Methodists, Presbyterians, or Methobapterians. There were no... Um, Roman Catholics as we see them today, it was one church, but it began to make changes. And we're going to look at some of that tonight as it evolved, or I should say in some cases devolved. So we'll look at the beginning of Roman Catholic doctrine, tradition, which became on par with Scripture, and the doctrines of the bishop, the mass, and baptism. We'll look at those tonight. Uh, some Roman persecutions. We'll look at some of those. The persecution wasn't nearly as widespread as some might imagine it was. You'll learn people named Ignatius, Polycarp, Sanctus, Blandina, Perpetua, Felicity, and others uh, are uh, enter their way into these historical times. So right here, the the grid there, you'll see the, the timeline is you've got Paul, Peter, Andrew, John, and Timothy. Uh, we know this is about when they lived. The, the dotted line uh, assumes they lived a little bit longer. We don't know when Timothy died or when Andrew died, um, but uh, they were uh, near towards the end of the first century. These New Testament people are important to us. Uh, the next one we come across is, is one named Clement of Rome. He might be mentioned. He might be the Clement that's mentioned in Philippians 4.3. But he was a bishop in Rome. If you were a bishop, you were the pastor. And I'll break down that word bishop for us tonight. But you're the pastor in Rome, an early pastor in Rome. Not the first pope, per se, uh, unless you become Roman Catholic. And then you surmise that Peter was the first pastor. And then Clement followed on his heels uh, and on and on. He was bishop of Rome around AD 92 to 99. He knew Peter. We know he knew Peter. And perhaps the one, as I said, mentioned in Philippians 4.3, he wrote the letter to the Corinthians that still exists. If you want to know what Clement wrote, you can find it in the Apostolic Fathers. It's very wonderful. He sp speaks, I've even got a quote from it later on in here, where he's speaking of Paul's letter. In fact, we know Paul wrote the letter because based upon what Clement said that he did write it. Not that we would doubt it, right? There are many people who say, well, you can't prove that Paul wrote wrote. Uh, First uh, Corinthians, well, the early people said he did. Why would we, 2,000 years removed, say that he didn't when people who lived at the day said he did? Who are you going to listen to? Ignatius of Antioch, he was bishop of Syrian Antioch, where the church became so big in Acts chapter 11. He knew Peter and John personally. He wrote seven letters on his way to Roman execution. You can also read his letters in the Apostolic Fathers. Been reading them uh, the last couple of days, um, rereading them, I should say. Uh, he loved, he was really looking forward to being eaten, chewed up, and swallowed by lions. He wanted this. He threatened anyone who got in his way. He felt like it was his way of endearing himself to God. I think he was a great guy, but he, I think he misunderstood grace. He really wanted to die this way. And, and I'm not making it up. You can read about it. He, and he says, I wasn't making up that. He wanted to be chewed to bits in the mouth of the lions. That's what he wanted. Did he end up that way? Yes, he did die that way. No, no one got in his way. <laughs> and his letters say, especially his letter to Rome, don't get in my way. 
we meet Polycarp, who is Bishop of Smyrna, one of the churches uh, of the seven letters, of the seven, uh, seven churches that John writes about in the book of Revelation. He was a disciple of John the Apostle. He was Bishop of Smyrna for many years. He died a martyr around AD 56, 156 to 166, and he had served Christ for 86 years. And I put that in quotations because those are his own words that have been preserved for us. Um, I think I read a little bit of that last week. I'll re- recap it today. So you see really on the timeline, our apostles up here, a short overlap. Clement would have known Timothy, John, Andrew, Peter, Paul, Ignatius knew Clement, Polycarp. These guys were, so we don't have a, har- a large gap from the apostles on to the, what we call the church fathers. In fact, in fact it's quite seamless. Uh, we have Papias or Papias, however you'd like to say that. Uh, he knew John, most likely he knew John the Apostle, probably a disciple of John. He wrote a now lost book called The Exposition and the Sayings of the Lord. How do we know it's now lost if we don't have it? <laughs> yeah, because someone else mentioned it. Like, how do you know, how do, how do any of us know that a man named, oh gosh, no, Shakespeare, we know Shakespeare existed. Um, there was a guy that drank hemlock and... He was a, he, he, Plato's, Socrates, Socrates, yes, Socrates, if you, if you saw Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, it was Socrates, don't even admit if you saw Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, Socrates, we only know Socrates existed because Plato wrote about him, he never wrote a thing, we don't know for a fact he existed other than that Plato wrote about him, same is true with uh, this the exposition and the sayings of the Lord that Papias wrote, quotations from which, uh, of which other, of which by other early church fathers they give us information, early information about the origin of the Gospels. So it was very important. Justin, his last name wasn't Martyr; he was a Christian martyr. So he took on the, at least from his, from those who wrote about him, he's called Justin the Martyr. Uh, he was a converted philosopher from pagan philosophy, and he became an apologist, a defender of the faith, and he wrote two apologies and a dialogue that exists today. It's called an extant piece of literature. He was executed in Rome under Marcus Aurelius, the emperor. And we talked about Justin briefly last week. So some of this is just recap. These are some of the big names that you see. Clement, Ignatius, Polycarp, Papias, Justin, as part of what we call the church fathers. Athenagoras, you got to you got to learn to say that because it's just a great name, quite frankly. Uh, he was converted while trying to disprove Christ- Christianity, and two of his books survive today. Um, Athenagoras. And he, I've got a couple of quotes from him as we close tonight. Irenaeus. Ever hear of Irenaeus? He's a great one. Uh, he's one of my favorites. Christian from Asia Minor who knew Polycarp, who was John's disciple, so it was just a generation removed from John himself. He traveled to Gaul, which is modern France, to be Bishop of Lyon. And he wrote what's called Against Heresies, which does exist today. He was writing against the heresies of the day to prove that Jesus is the Christ and try to put to rest all the garbage that comes up. What we'll find in the history of the church, dating all the way back to the the late first century, early second century, is things haven't changed. And I'll read to you a few quotes, and you'll think that as we come to the end of our time tonight, and you'll think, we're in the modern day. It's the same thing. Kind of encouraging, but somewhat discouraging. The post-apostolic Christians, the best-known Christian leaders in the second century are those. And you'll see them as they just flow sequentially after the, uh, after the apostles. Did they have all the writings that we call the Bible today? No. 
but they had a good portion of them. Well, we think they, they didn't have all of them. They might have had every single one of them, but they didn't have a bound copy of the Bible like you and I have. We'll look at that next week in a little bit more detail of how the Bible came to us, but it's growing. Paul's already written his letters. They're in the churches. They're reading them around, and they pass them around. They're reading them and passing them around. The church fathers know about them. They're quoting them. They talk about them. They're there. The churches look at them, and then they have these men that come along that help them along the way. Excuse me. Um, there are many extant writings from the early part of the second century, as I showed you. In the, it's all put together, put in English, in a book called The Apostolic Fathers. I keep showing that to you like I haven't done, so I'm going to leave it right there. Um, some of these books, as I said earlier, the Didache, which it's a word that means the teaching. Uh, the, the Greek word for, for teaching and is didasko. It means I teach. That would be the verb form. The didache would be the teaching. Barnabas, first and second Clement, Shepherd for Hermas, Shepherd of Hermas, Polycarp's letters, Ignatius's letters, the martyrdom of Polycarp we see, and Diogenetus. Uh, here's the writings up there. Anyway, just trying to give you a good good time span of what we're looking at and what went on. Some other early 2nd century Christian documents, you'll see up there in red, the Gospel of Thomas. How many of you are familiar with the Gospel of Thomas? Uh, you know, there's two. There's another one called the Infancy Gospel of Thomas. It's got Jesus um, making birds out of mud. How about that? When he was a child and chasing people off and uh, being, acting a fool. Uh, these are Gnostic writings. They were written after the fact. We know Thomas was dead by then. If you wanted to write something and have some credibility put to it, you just attached an apostle's name. That's why you'll see uh, other documents later in later literature called the Gospel of Peter, the Gospel of Mary. Uh, these are things that people wrote. They were false. They were full of lies. They contradict the scriptures. And they've been dated to as early, just perhaps as early as AD 150. Uh, but we know they're not written by those people. Um, the martyrs of Leon and Justin Martyr, Athenagoras, Irenaeus, we see their writings here in these documents. And that's where we get these sources. That's where we're able to do a study of church history. If you're, how many of you are familiar with Philip Schaff, the author Philip Schaff, and his voluminous writings of church history? I mean, you can't sit down and write, read all the voluminous writings of church history from, from Philip Schaff, but uh, a good, uh, good set of books to have on your shelf. They sure look good. If, if you can find some that have already been read, you can look like you've read them or something. So let's take a look at the source of authority in the church and the development of the early Catholic doctrines. These are very helpful for us as Protestants today. The authority in the church, what should be the source of authority for the church? What do you think? Word of God, word of God. okay. Well, they didn't have a word of God back then per se. They had letters written by the apostles. They didn't have a Bible they could, you know, hold up and say, this is our authority, but they could speak from the apostles. They could, and they did. In the early church, that's what they did. Differences in answer to this question, though, are the cause of some of the most profound differences between various groups of people calling themselves Christians to this day. I mean, we're a Bible church. We, we believe, some have been led to believe, rightly so, I think, that we get our authority from the Bible. If the Bible says it, that's what we believe. What if the Bible doesn't talk about a certain topic? What if it doesn't say something? What do we do then? Where do we go? Well, we use the, what we say. The Holy Spirit will lead us. But sometimes the Holy Spirit leads somebody to do this, and somebody to do this, and somebody to do that. So we don't always know. There's always a discussion in the church. So in order to try to get answers for everything, um, some people will go beyond the Bible and say, well, this person said that. They were good people, and that's what we're going to do. That's called tradition. 
Over the centuries the church has existed, three common answers have been given. We believe in the Bible alone. That's most Protestants. Certainly it's our church. Some will say the Bible plus church tradition. That's Roman Catholic Church today. And then some will say Bible plus modern revelations. We call those Pentecostals, Charismatics. Um, and the Bible, really, you don't even need the Bible in modern Charismatics because if the Bible says it, it, it really doesn't necessarily matter for a typical Charismatic. If they had a feeling or an experience, man, have you ever tried to argue against someone's experience? It's, it's next to impossible. When I know what I felt, I know what I felt, I know what I saw. Yeah, but the Bible says no, but I know what I felt. Okay. It's a, nearly an impossible argument to make. The authority for the Roman Catholic Church, uh, today it unapologetically states that the sources of authority are the Bible and church tradition. Again, we'll look at a little bit how that came to be tonight. Their arguments is that Jesus said that the Holy Spirit would guide the church. That's what Jesus told the disciples in John 16. I'm leaving, the Holy Spirit is coming, He will guide you in all truth. Number two, and Jesus promised to be with His church to the end. After the Great Commission, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the earth. Promise the Spirit would come, I'll be with you to the end. So if the church has taught something for a long time, it must be true, or Jesus lied. Not my, not my logic, but typically that's what we've done for a long time. That's the way it is. Now, how many of you entrenched in, in your own denomination would say the same thing? You grew up Baptist in the 1950s. Baptists in the 1950s don't fit very well into Harvest Bible Church in 2023. That's a very legalistic way of, of uh, living and I would say interpreting the Bible, but I don't know many Baptists in the 1950s that knew the Bible very well. Why? Because there weren't very many Baptist preachers preaching the Word of God. Oh, they would hold it up and use a verse or two. I, I find this to be very sad when I hear old people from that generation Passing away, reading and hearing their testimonies. I don't hear a whole lot about the Bible. Don't hear a whole lot about the deity of Christ. Doctrine and theology. Didn't hear it growing up in the Baptist churches I grew up in. My mom, my aunt, some of you know my aunt goes to church here. They all grew up in churches, good churches where Jesus was, pre was preached. And they all say the same thing. We never knew this was in the Bible. Uh, my last six months when I was at Dallas Seminary, I was an interim pastor at a, at a very wealthy church in Highland Park, Highland Park Baptist Church. And I went in there, and they, the guy said, look, just, just do what you want to do. The guy that hired me left the day I came in. Thank you. I'm all alone here. Uh, and I'm just a seminary student at the time. So I just started going through Daniel, uh, just teaching through Daniel. These people were gripped with it. And they were entrenched at the time. It was a late 90s, early 2000, 99 or 2000, something like that. And they were entrenched in Dallas in the, the liberal and the conservative Baptist junk, you know, that's still going on today. And this was a liberal group. They didn't know why, mind you. And I would talk to them, and one guy said, look, you know, we leave all that discussion to the theologians. I said, what do you think a theologian is? A theologian is someone who knows about God and teaches about God. How do we know about God? From God's Word. So I would just preach God's Word. These people were gripped with it. They loved it. Never heard any of the things about Daniel. Most people, the only thing they know about Daniel is he's some guy in a lion's den and, and lived. And they think it was a little boy because our little children's books have him as a little boy. He was an old man in his 80s. They don't know. Why don't we know? Not taught. Anyone quote to me Hosea 4, 6? My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. Yeah. It's like the Bible and tradition. Is tradition for all the legalists? 
can be. Tradition can be where the legalism comes in. Not always. Some, some traditions are very good. Uh, we're not here to trash all traditions, but what you'll find, what we'll, sh- we'll show is that the, the Catholic Church will, if it's Bible and tradition, tradition always trumps the Bible. And that's really the, the difficult part about it. So, no, it's okay. We have traditions at Harvest Bible Church. We just have to measure our traditions, what we traditionally do against, over and against the Scriptures. Yes, in a sense, there, there are some that where there's the control of the Pope, and what he says becomes their tradition if he does. Not many popes are making a bunch of uh, new rules. In fact, the Pope... Well, I wouldn't say they never question. There's a lot of them that do question it, but they're not supposed to question it. You know, I played golf with a guy last Monday in a, in a Christian golf tournament. Christian golf tournament means you don't have an eraser on your pencil on the scorecard. <laughs> Uh, and, and he was Catholic, and, uh, and when, he said, so a Bible church, huh? What's that? And I said, well, it's where we look at the Bible. I said, you Catholics could learn a thing or two. And, and he said, uh, I mean, I had already gauged that he was pretty down to earth. He said, I'm right there with you. So immediately I'm going, a lapsed Catholic, the best kind. <laughs> he said, I don't understand this Pope stuff. I don't understand why I got to go to a priest to confess my sins. I don't understand why they can't get married. Can you tell me? I said, well, it's all their church tradition. It's what they wanted to believe. It's not in the Bible. He said, what's a Bible church? What the Bible says. That's all it is. Todd, do you have your hand up? Yeah. On the last slide, um, the, uh, the, the final, the conclusion of the first two arguments doesn't even tie. There's no logical connection. There doesn't need to be. Yeah, I mean, there's, no, there's really no connection. <laughs> There's no connection, Todd is saying, between the first two points and the last one. That's called illogic. But that's what you get. And when you, when everything is predicated on something that's illogical, hence you got all the craziness. The Council of Trent. Council of Trent was a council of Catholics that came together in the 1960s. Not in the 1960s, in the 1500s. That was Vatican II in the 1960s. It was in the 1530s uh, to... Um, counteract what was going on with the Reformation. Council of Trent said, quote, <clears throat> that the Roman Catholic Church derived its doctrines from both the Bible and from tradition, and that it venerated both these sources with equal reverence and affection. It affirmed that the Bible is the inspired word of God, which tradition is not. But tradition is a source of faith equal to the Bible. Figure that one. The Bible is superior in dignity, but tradition is superior in completeness. The Bible needs the church as its interpreter. Yeah, I, I would prefer that you save questions to the end, but if anything, I can clarify. I was just going to make a comment. It's, it's been, and comments. <laughs> in some countries, priests can marry, but yet the Pope says, you know, they're not supposed to. So um, no, in no country are priests allowed to marry according to Catholic doctrine. Now, if they were already married when they became a priest, they can stay married. Okay. Maybe that's yeah, that's... That's a good solution. Or you can be Thomas Cranmer and marry in secret and not worry about it. So what you see there in this quote from the Council of Trent, uh, from the Roman Catholic Church, quoting from a, a Roman Catholic, is that uh, even though the Bible is inspired and tradition isn't, tradition is on top of it. Tradition tells us what the Bible says. The church, they will say, is the one that put the Bible together. So if you put the Bible together, then you have authority over the Bible. Hence, we can make it say whatever we want. So the authority for Roman Catholics, a sample of Roman Catholic beliefs based on church tradition and not the Bible is as follows. Number one, power is vested in bishops 
and the Pope. Number two, celebrating mass and baptism in the Roman Catholic Church is necessary for salvation. That's why no Roman Catholic, worth his or her salt, believes that anyone who's not Roman Catholic is Christian. Number three, Mary was sinless and ascended into heaven without dying. That doctrine comes along much later. It wasn't an early doctrine. It's just been added. Um, number four, it's efficacious to pray to Mary and the saints. In other words, it works. Saints meaning dead people, dead Christians. You know, Jesus might be busy. Jesus is a man. He's crusty. He's, he's uh, rough around the edges. Talk to his mama. His mama will go to him and, and bring him to our way. That's what Roman Catholics teach. I'm not, I'm not adding that to be silly or to, to make jokes. That's what they think. <coughs> Purgatory really runs the entire operation. It's a place of purging that most Christians go before heaven in order to be worthy of it. Uh, you're not quite ready for heaven. You were a little bit too bad on earth. You need to go to purgatory and, uh, and be tortured for a while, tormented, so that, uh, and then wait for the people that love you to give some money to the coffer. And then, yeah, it's, about, it's what runs the system. Without purgatory, there's no money. There's no real works to get your loved ones out of purgatory and into heaven. Uh, this is what they believe. Is it in the Bible? Are any of these things in the Bible? No. That's why arguing with them is very difficult to do. Uh, in the writings of this time, we see the development of Roman Catholic doctrine on the bishop, baptism, and the Lord's Supper. Let's take a look at it. Overseers, elders, and deacons. This is church polity. Before we look at how that developed, we've got to go back and establish some facts about the three terms, three of these terms. Overseer, elder, and deacon. I mean, if you're going to get to a place where there's a pope, which means papa, the big daddy, and, and his little hierarchy of people that underneath him, you've got to figure out, well, I don't see a pope in the Bible. I don't see archbishops in the Bible. I don't see cardinals in the Bible. Um, I don't even see priests in the Bible in the New Testament. I see them in the Old Testament, but they were mediating between God and man. First Timothy 2.5 says there's one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. So if we just go back to what the Bible says about church polity, we can maybe get some clarification. So an overseer in the Bible is from the Greek word episkopos. It's a compound word from the preposition epi, which means upon or over, and skopos meaning to see. Episkopos, an overseer. Episkopos. We, we translate it today as a bishop. I would be a bishop. An elder stems from the Greek word presbyteros, which means old man or uh, maybe better, a wise man. We assume that older men are wiser men. These are the terms used in the New Testament, overseer and elder. And then the word deacon is a transliteration of the Greek word diakonos, which means one who serves. These are the three offices we see in the New Testament. Overseer and elder were used as interchangeable terms in the New Testament, referring to the same office. Let me show you. Paul says in Titus 1.5, or 1.5 to 7, he says, For this reason, speaking to Titus, I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders. The Greek word is presbyteroi, which is the plural. Appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion, for the overseer, he doesn't say elder, for the overseer, the episkopos, must be above reproach as God's steward. Not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, but not fond of sordid gain. So he's using the word presbyteroi and episkopos synonymously. Are you with me? You having fun? All right, hang in there. 
Uh, this is answering a long-held question. I'm not sure if I got you yet. Really, we've got to go through these Greek words. It's important. Okay. Paul says in Acts 20, 17, and 28, he says, says from Miletus, or Luke writes, from Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders, presbyteroi of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, be on your guard for yourselves uh, and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you episcopoi. He called the elders. God has made you an episcopoi over them. And he says, to do what? To shepherd the church of God. That's where we get the word pastor. Shepherd. So you've got a pastor, a shepherd, is also a presbyteroi, an elder, which is also an episcopos, an overseer. They are synonymous. They are plural, a plurality of them in each church. Never just one. Not just the one, the CEO, you know, the, the Ed Young of all Baptist churches, you know, and, and no, with no disrespect to Ed Young. Um, Baptist churches typically have the one, they believe in one elder, one elder in charge. The plurality of elders and overseers also, we note that uh, the New Testament churches, all of them, had a multiplicity or multiple of overseer and elders. Acts 20, verse 17, Titus 1, 5. Acts 14, 23 says, when they had appointed elders, the presbyteroi, for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So a plurality, once again. This is what the Bible says. Senior pastors evolved much later. You don't see in there, appoint a senior pastor. Go to the nearest seminary that preaches the Bible or Bible college. Find a guy. Make sure that he's been uh, um, ordained by a local church and put him in there. That's not what they had then. We do that today, though, don't we? Is that a bad thing? Is that a wrong thing? You know, where we appoint pastors and where we get them, at least what we ask them is, what do you know? We can typically tell what they know by if they went to school, if they went to greater schooling than just high school or college, uh, which school they went to, we know about their theology, we want to know what you believe and why, can you lead us, okay? And you can be one of our elders, perhaps the senior pastor, typically thought of as knowing more than the lay pastors. Sometimes he does, sometimes he doesn't. The word bishop itself is a transliteration of the Greek word episkopos. So you see episkopos in Greek, it's episkopos in Latin, very close. Biscop in Old English, in our modern English, we get the word bishop. So, wasn't that neat? Let's do that again. <laughs> Over time, the Roman Catholic Church came to make a distinction between these two offices. Interesting, isn't it? Because they're not distinct. They're the same office, different words. In fact, you, if you just use presbyteroi, that just is a noun. Um, an old man, a wise man. An overseer is what that old man does. He oversees. One's more of an action title than just the noun title. With only one bishop over a local church, and under him were several presbyters, which priest is kind of a contraction of the word presbyters, if you can see that. Uh, but why? Why would they do this? Why over time did they do this? The overseer, episcopos, the bishop, the presbyteros, priest, were under the bishop. Why would they do this? Well, let's take a look at a few things. The Didache, also, of the teaching, part of the Apostolic Father's book, if you get, grab a copy. It's an early Christian document purporting to give the teaching of the twelve apostles. We learn a few things from the Didache. Uh, you can see it appears right there towards the end of the first century. It's a vital witness to what the church was like in the time just after the apostles. The Didache discusses Christian morals, Lord's, uh, that should say Lord's Supper, and baptism. 
It gives detailed instructions about how to deal with itinerant evangelists who were common at the time. Why were itinerant evangelists common at the time? There were no pastors. Keep in mind, early Christianity didn't have, didn't have a bunch of trained pastors. And what are you going to be trained in? I've been to Ephesus. I've been to Philippi. I've been to Colossae. I've read these letters, Paul. I've memorized them. I've learned them. I've learned the theology. I know the Old Testament. Not a lot of people were doing that. You've got a few good teachers that walk around called the apostles and some of these early church fathers who are training others, and they're traveling evangelists. If you read, say, 2 John, you ever come across 2 John? I believe it's verse 7. There's only one chapter, so it's just verse 7, where um, John says, if, if someone comes and they don't, and he's talking about, once again, people that don't think Jesus is real. They don't think his body's real. They said, if someone doesn't come and say that Jesus came in the flesh, don't let them into your home. In fact, he says, don't even give them a greeting. Don't even say hello. Good to see you. God be with you. Don't let them into your home. Now, some people use that today for the modern Mormons who come or Jehovah's Witnesses who knock on the door. And they say, well, that passage says not to let them in my house. Well, back then, houses were the churches. And so what John is saying in 2 John 7 is don't let them come be a preacher in your house. It doesn't mean that you and I can't invite these people in, serve them a cup of coffee. I mean, water, because they're not going to drink coffee. And try to share the gospel with them and say, well, 2 John 7 says not to let them in your home. In the home was to let them come in and preach. As men became more educated, pastors became more the common denominator. Here, the Didache gives instructions about what to do with evangelists as they travel about. When the Didache refers to the offices of bishop and deacon, it's apparent that there will be multiple bishops in a local church. So the early church was still preaching the Bible. The Didache uh, 7 says this, And concerning baptism, baptize this way. Having first said all these things, baptize into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit in flowing water. But if you have not flowing water, baptize them into other water. And if you, can, if you cannot in cold, then do it in warm water. But if you, have not, if you have not either, pour out water thrice upon the head into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. But before the baptism, let the baptizer and the baptized fast. Okay? Looks like what the Bible says in Matthew 28, 19 to 20. Baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What do you do if you don't have any water? Well, that, does, that makes no sense to us today. What do you mean don't have water? But back then, they didn't have faucets. You can't just go home tonight and just hit your water and turn it off. Hit it, turn it off. And thank God, I have water whenever I want it. Let the light switch on and off. Didn't have that back then. In fact, some of you didn't have that in the 50s. It could be, but... So if you didn't have water here, do whatever you can with whatever water you can come up with. But you see here in the Didache, there's no baptismal regeneration. No thought of it. No thought of baptize these people so that they can be saved. Concerning the Eucharist in the Didache, or the Lord's Supper, thus give thanks. First, concerning the cup, we thank you, our Father, for the holy vine of David, your servant, which you made known to us through Jesus Christ, your servant, to be your glory forever. And concerning the broken bread, we thank you, our Father, for the life and knowledge which you have made known to us through Jesus, your servant. To, to you be the glory forever. But let no one eat or drink of your Eucharist, but they who have been baptized into the name of the Lord. Looks good to me. No transubstantiation. Transubstantiation, for those of you who might not know, that means that's the Roman Catholic doctrine of taking the Lord's Supper, which they call the Mass, it's not the same as the Lord's Supper, but it's somewhat equivalent. You take the Mass. When you go to the Mass, you take the bread. You don't get to drink the juice. 
priest does that for you. When you eat the bread, a piece of bread that's been blessed. You know, I've always noticed that my food, when I eat it, whether I bless it or not, still tastes good. It's still the same thing. Thanking God for it is good, but it doesn't change the structure of it. They believe that when they partake of this bread, as the Lord's Supper, it becomes Jesus' body in their body. It dies again, therefore my sins are now forgiven again. The priest will drink the blood, which is the wine, transubstantiation. So a good Catholic, knowing that he or she is a sinner, will go to Mass every single day. That's what Martin Luther did. Every single day was going as often as he could because Martin Luther knew he was a sinner. And he thought, something is wrong. As soon as I leave the Mass, I sin again. If I die like this, I'm going to go to hell. Something's wrong. And the Reformation was born. But in the early teachings, there's no transubstantiation. The Didache says this, Appoint for yourselves bishops and deacons worthy of the Lord, men meek and not lovers of money, truthful and proven. For they also render to you the service of prophets and teachers. Despise them not, therefore, for they are your honored ones together with the prophets and the teachers. Didache 15. That's great. Good teaching. Note here in the Didache, it seems that the author is referring to multiple bishops in the church, like the New Testament practice, not the one bishop that Roman Catholics later came to practice and recognize. So Clement of Rome, around A.D. 95, he wrote a letter to the Corinthians who were again experiencing factions. Some in the church had deposed some of their bishops. This church was always a mess. In the letter, he uses the term bishop and the office of episcopate and presbyters interchangeably. So here you got him, Clement, here in our timeline. He says, The apostles appointed the first fruits of their labors, having first proved them by the Spirit to be bishops and deacons of those who should afterwards believe. Our apostles also knew that there would be strife on account of the office of the episcopate. For this reason, therefore, they appointed those ministers already mentioned and afterwards gave instructions that when these should fall asleep, other approved men should succeed them in their ministry. I don't mean to bore you with too many quotes, but just to show you the early church was following the New Testament practice. Clement says, I t- or take up the epistle of the blessed apostle Paul. This is around AD 95. I love this because he's affirming that Paul wrote 1 Corinthians. What did he write to you at the time when the gospel first began to be preached. Truly, under the inspiration of the Spirit, he wrote to you concerning himself and Cephas and Apollos, because even then parties had been formed among you. And if you know 1 Corinthians, that's what the first chapter is addressing. There are divisions between those parties. It is disgraceful, beloved, yea, highly disgraceful and unworthy of your Christian profession that such a thing should be heard of as the most steadfast and ancient church of the Corinthians should, on account of one or two persons engaged in sedition against its presbyters. Obey your leaders, your church leaders. What he's saying, these presbyters, this multiplicity of men that Paul got started in our church. Polycarp wrote a letter. I won't bore you with Polycarp's letter. I'll just bring you to a summary of where we're going with this. So the early church used the terms episkopos and presbyteros interchangeably, just like the New Testament does. The early church fathers like Clement, the writings of the Didache, and Polycarp did the same, Who Polycarp himself being a bishop. But in the writings of Ignatius of Antioch, who comes just shortly thereafter, we will begin to see a subtle change used by the Roman Catholic Church to defend their idea of one bishop in charge, not only of one church, but of an entire region of churches. All right, you still with me? Do you need to get up and do jumping jacks? All right. So Ignatius' letter, 
We're seeing this evolution of change. It's all been good up to this point until Ignatius comes along. But Ignatius wasn't a bad guy. He just had a different idea. I was reading a Catholic site tonight, right before I taught, to read on modern thoughts of Ignatius. It was very insightful. So Ignatius in the office of bishop, he says this, When you are obedient to the bishop as to Jesus Christ, it is evident to me that you are living not after men, but after Jesus Christ. It is therefore necessary that you should do nothing without the bishop. His epistle to the Tralians. He says, Plainly, therefore, we ought to regard the bishop as the Lord himself. Now, I've said that on occasion. Um, recently, we were talking about Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus and not helping Martha. And Martha said, Tell her to help. I told you that when, the, when a man of God is preaching God's word, has God's word in his hand, it's like you're sitting at the feet of Jesus. I'm not Jesus. You know that. I don't even need to say it. And yet, I said it anyway. Just to make sure you know that I know I'm not Jesus. But when we preach his word, it's the same thing. But that's not what Ignatius is saying. He said, you regard the bishop as the Lord himself. Now, he's not a crazy heretic. There's all kinds of bad teachings coming in. And Ignatius believes in the power and the role of the bishop. I do too, by the way. I make it my goal to make certain that I know exactly what I'm talking about. I'm not perfect, so there's no way I can always be perfect, but I'm striving to be. I make it my goal to make certain that not only am I preaching the truth, I'm living it. In fact, I have a covenant with you. You, Some of you don't even know it. My covenant with the church as your bishop is that I absolutely obey our doctrinal statement as it's written. I not only believe it, I must teach it, and I cannot change my mind on it. If I change my mind, it's written in our and in my own covenant with you, that if I change my mind, even about the end times, if I move from being a premillennialist to a postmillennialist, or if I move into an amillennialist, I sign my death warrant at this church. I'm done. I cannot and I will not change. My behavior is a covenant with you. I will not be caught doing anything that's immoral. Before my children were grown, I had a covenant with you that I don't ever judge me for how bad my children behave, and, and God bless them, they didn't. But if they did, you never know what your kids are going to do. But don't judge me by how they behave. Judge me by how I deal with them. Can't stop these kids from acting a fool sometimes, right? But judge me by how you deal with it. That, that's my covenant with you. So I believe that if a, a pastor, a bishop, who has his right doctrine, is striving to have right doctrine, and is living uh, to please Christ, to the glory of God, Yeah, listen to him as if he's the Lord himself. That's a trustworthy man. In fact, don't ever go to a church where you can't trust the man, or men, I should say, who are leading the church. I think that's possible. I think Ignatius was an idealist like I am in that regard. And so if that, insofar as that's possible, do so. He's got the final say. Let him have the final say. He knows you don't. That's what he's saying. I'm not saying that to you. We live in a little different day. People know a little bit more. So we're not going to cast this guy off as crazy, but he lived in a day where not everyone knew, and the bishop did. At least they knew more. So why a monarchial or a kingly type bishop? Paul himself wrote in uh, Acts 20.32, he said, I commit you to God and the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among the saints. Paul just was able to say, I give you to God. I turn you over to God. But heresy was rampant in the churches of Irenaeus or Ignatius' day. 
And Ignatius wanted to put a quick end to it by increasing the power of the bishop. Ignatius didn't want to just give it to God. And I get that too. Let's finish this. Let's solve it. Cheryl's over there. Did you hear Cheryl laugh? She laughed because she knows her husband likes to fix things right away and move on. I don't want to have a bunch of meetings. I don't want to have a bunch of garbage. Let's just fix it and go on to tomorrow. Anybody else like that? Some people like to have meetings and more meetings and let's talk and let's pray and pray and pray. Look, there's a lot of things you don't need to pray too much about. The answer is right there. Move on. So that's why she laughs. Um, And Ignatius, (laughs) maybe that's why I give him the benefit of the doubt. I relate to this guy. Uh, Fix it. Look, let's put the power of the bishop. If he says it's wrong, he knows the scripture. He knows it. He says it's wrong. It's wrong. Move on. But it began to be abused. Irenaeus comes around, around 180. His opinion of the bishop is it is a matter of necessity that every church should agree with this church. That is the Roman church. It's not the big Roman Catholic church as we know it today, uh, but it's the one church coming out of Rome on account of its preeminent authority. So in other words, Irenaeus put the emphasis on the Roman church or the church in Rome because of its great authority. It was the biggest, most powerful. That's the capital of the empire. So it's a matter of necessity. Every church should agree with this church on account of its preeminent authority. Inasmuch as the apostolic tradition has been preserved continuously by those faithful men, that is the Roman bishops. This is Irenaeus' words in his book Against Heresy. So when we get to the Lord's Supper, just so you know, Harvest Bible Church, we looked at the Lord's Supper as a way to commemorate, remember the death of Jesus. We remember his broken body with the bread. We remember the blood that flowed out of his body with the juice. We just remember it. It's a remembrance of it. But we not only remember, we look forward to it because Jesus said on the night before he died, I will not partake of the fruit of this vine until the day I return to my father's kingdom. And then we're all going to eat together. We not only remember what Jesus did, we look forward to what we will do with him. That's the Lord's Supper. That's what the Bible says. Hence, that is our stance at Harvest Bible Church. The early bishops believed the Lord's Supper, also called the Eucharist. The word Eucharist means give thanks. They believed it was necessary for salvation. And only they could administer it. How many of you, if I was out, if I could say, would it be okay if I said, uh, hey, Doug, will you, or uh, uh, Davis, Ray, if I said, Ray, you do it for me. You, you take care of the Lord's Supper for me. What would you say, Ray? <laughs> Not going to happen. Well, what about Todd? Todd's an elder here. Todd, you administer the Lord's Supper. Would that be odd to you? It would be odd only in the sense that he's never done it here, and I'm always the one that does. But would it be odd because he's not, you know, the top dog bishop here like I am? He's a bishop too. You don't think it would be okay? What about baptizing? Is it okay to, does the preacher have to do the baptizing? I mean, it's interesting that the Great Commission, you know, it says, make disciples of all nations, have your preacher baptized in the name of the Father. And yet... The only people that baptize, by and large, are preachers. Great Commission says anybody can do it. Administer the Lord's Supper. Do we have to administer it? Isn't it just a remembrance of what Jesus did? A looking forward to, you can have people over in your home. Tonight we're going to have our people in our home, and we're going to remember the Lord's death and look to His coming. Any of you can do that. Not in the early church. We are gradually taking the bishop and making him a separate, not a, not a servant in the church, as we are supposed to be, but the king in the church. The intention is that you, if, is that you obey the bishop, breaking the one bread, which is the medicine for immortality, 
the antidote in order that we should not die but live forever. That's from Ignatius himself. He says that let that be considered a dependable Eucharist which is done by the bishop. So the, the people are looking now to the bishop. It's not all a bunch of heresy, but the bishop. What does the bishop say? What does he say? What did he do? He's the man. Bishop, tell me I'm going to heaven. Tell me I'm not going to heaven. Tell me what I need to do to get to heaven. What do men do with that kind of power and authority? The Lord's Supper from Irenaeus. We hear the beginnings of transubstantiation. The bread and the wine actually becoming the blood, the blood of Jesus within the partaker. He says this, since the Eucharist becomes the body of Christ, how do they say the flesh uh, that is nourished from the body and blood of the Lord is incapable of receiving eternal life? Baptism. By the way, our view of baptism at Harvest Bible Church is uh, you can come to know Christ and never be baptized. And you, when you die, you're with Christ. You don't, it, does that water make someone a, a, a Christian? You know, God, you know, when you come to, to heaven, you stand before God. If God looks at you and goes, you didn't have H2O poured on your head. I'm sorry. Well, I got dunked. Oh, well, there you go. If you got dunked, how long did your preacher leave you under? Or, no, I was sprinkled. Well, that's not good enough. God doesn't care about H2O. Now, if you say, I refuse to be baptized, that's a different story. Baptism is like, uh, is, it's a public profession of one's faith. Why wouldn't you, if you're a Christian, want to make, make it public? But our, our, my, uh, our policy here at Harvest Bible Church is that since it's a melting pot of denominations, typically Protestant denominations, most are not Baptists. Most of the people that come here were baptized as infants. And most of those people, it's been my experience, do not want to be told they have to be rebaptized. So we don't tell you. But we do find it interesting that over time, most people believe, you know what? I really wasn't baptized as a believer. I'd like to be baptized. The moment you do that, you become what's called an Anabaptist. Not anti-Baptist. Cheryl asked me that the other day. She said, why are they called Anabaptist? Are they against Baptists? No. Anabaptist means rebaptized. Uh, be re- re- so you were baptized as an infant, you're rebaptized as an adult, and you're telling the world, hey, now I understand my faith, I own it. So we don't make a big deal about it and tell people what they have to do. Again, it's not my place as a pastor or bishop to tell you what to do. I'm a servant to this church. Justin said, we obtain in the water the forgiveness of past sins. Is that true? No. No. It has assuredly been ordained that no one can attain knowledge of salvation without baptism. Tertullian. No. These are heavy hitters and in uh, Christian history. Baptism, according to Clement of Alexandria, different than the Clement of Rome, is the washing through which we are cleansed of our sins, the grace gift by which the penalties of our sins are removed. Bishop, Lord's Supper, baptism, these points imply that the church determines who is saved. Can't have a valid church without a bishop who has received the power from a valid bishop. To be saved, one must be both baptized and take the Lord's Supper from a valid bishop. We note that the origins of the apostolic succession for the Roman Catholic Church came to believe that there's a chain of men stretching all the way back from the current pope to Peter himself. Isn't that strange? In 1983, Pope John Paul II said this, The church does not exist without the Holy Communion, and there is no Holy Communion without priests. Whoever has received the ministerial sacraments enjoys a holy power to make the Eucharist sacrifice in the role of Christ and offer it to God in the name of all the people. 
Catholics do not point to the Bible as a source for their practice, but quite brazenly point to the early church tradition as the basis for their belief. In other words, they point to Ignatius. Look at what Ignatius said. Look at what Irenaeus said. Yeah, but look at what John said before that. Look at what Peter said before that. Look at what the, the writers of Scripture said, the apostles. That's where we look. It got off kilter, maybe for valid reasons, but not good enough. So let's take a look quickly at Roman persecutions. My time is up. Uh, Roman society, here's what will make you think that we're all this, not much has changed. Roman society, Ovid says, a married woman with only two lovers is a paradigm of paragon of virtue. <laughs> Juvenal says, beautification is one of the most important technologies of the age. And it goes on to speak of what rich women should have. Horace says, I am stricken with the heavy darts of love for Lysias, Lyscusus, who claims in tenderness to outdo any woman. What's he talking about? Homosexual love. The Society Juvenile says, poor women endure the perils of childbirth. But how often does a gilded bed harbor a pregnant woman? So great is the skill, so powerful the drugs of the abortionist. A letter from a soldier to his wife. He says, do not be anxious. I beg and entreat you to care, uh, to take care of the little one. And as soon as we receive our pay, I will send it to you. If by chance you bear a child, if it is a boy, let it be. If it is a girl, cast it out. The Romans did not believe in abortion and killing a, a, a child within the womb. The child would be born and they would go leave it on a street corner. It's called abandoning it or casting it out, exposing infants. Many of these children died. Others were taken and raised as slaves. We've got a couple of views, the way Christians viewed the gladiatorial shows, um, uh, Cyprian, Bishop of Carthage, gaze on the appearance. He said, rise above this and look down below. And if you turn your eyes to the cities, you will behold a concourse fraught with sadness. The gladiatorial games are prepared that blood may gladden the lust of cruel eyes. Man is slaughtered, that man may be grafted. Their view of the theater, crime is not only committed, it is taught in the theaters. Also, you will behold what may well cause you grief and shame. The old horrors of paras parasite, that's killing parents, and incest are unfolded in action calculated to express the image of the truth so that any crime that was formerly committed may not be forgotten. Adultery, adultery is learnt while it is seen. That's today. That's what I said. That's what I said earlier is that you'll see that what was happening then, you're griping about it then. Say, God, so we think, God, you've got to come back today, right? It's so bad. We say that it's never been worse. It was so bad in Noah's day, God destroyed the whole earth. Apparently, it's not as bad as it was in Noah's day. It really hadn't gotten a whole lot worse than it was then. The Christian view of the Roman lesbian, gay, bisexual, transsexual. Men are emasculated, and he is most pleasing who has completely broken down the man into a woman. If you could gaze into the secret places, you would see what even, see what even to see is a crime. You would see men with frenzied lusts rushing upon men, doing things that afford no gratification even to those who do them. Cyprian, Epistle to Diogenes. Yeah, it's always been, right? And we know what God thinks of these. All right. I'm out of time. But just so you know, by griping about these things, Christians were, were called, uh, said, you people participate in orgies. And they took that from the love feasts, their Lord's suppers. They said, you're nothing but atheists, meaning that you won't worship the pantheon of Roman gods. You just have one God. 
They called them cannibals because you eat the bread, uh, the body of Jesus, drink his blood. And they thought they were arsonists because they, were, they believed the world would come to an end by fire. And it's believed that they set Rome on fire. And then I've got quotes from Tertullian and some other early church fathers. The point being is that what you see in the early church is good doctrine. And then just a, a, a generation later, just through a tweak, just a little bit, you're off. I heard a guy say one time, he said, if you left the shores, he was talking about Christopher Columbus, but he said, if you leave the shore of, uh, of Spain and, and you set your, your compass to go to the Americas, you set it right here. If you're off by that much when you start, you're not going to hit the Americas. Just that much when you start because the little bit, little bit, little bit, little bit, all of a sudden you're down in Antarctica. This is what it is with doctrine as well. And so how did the Roman Catholic Church become the Roman Catholic Church? Heck, how did the, the, the church you grew up in 50 years ago become the liberal church it is today? Just by a little change here and there. But what was then, nothing's changed. Early church history teaches us that. Excuse me? A little bit of leaven leavens the whole dough. All right. You going to come back next week? All right. Okay. It's hot. Long day. Church history. That's kind of boring. This is good stuff. And it gets better. I promise. You're, you're hearing names. How many of you have heard some of these names? Or then maybe it's the first time you heard these names? All right. You can't raise your hand because I gave you both, both questions. But the, uh, uh, These are good names to know. Especially when you come to, to a church and somebody's quoting these people. Hey, I know who that guy was. At least I remember Lance talking about him. I have no idea what he did, but I remember that guy. All right, let me close this in a word of prayer. Father, thank you. I pray that we have, uh, in discussing the church, discussing your word, at least at some level, not in a verse-by-verse way, but in a way that we look back and see some of the errors that crept in. I pray that we've worshipped you tonight. We've sat and listened. We've taken time to learn and to fill our minds and to sit and wait for you to speak to us through the history of the church. We, too, are in the history of the church and I pray, Lord, as we see the, the indicators of the past, that we wouldn't make the same mistakes, that we would know a little something more. Now when we read a passage about uh, pastors and bishops and presbyters, we know. We know what your word says. We know how it got off track. I pray that we would know something more for your glory. In this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon by Dr. Lance Waldy, senior pastor of Harvest Bible Church in Cypress, Texas. 